I think most runners have, have sort of had this. And you could, I could probably put the question to all our listeners and probably the, the loads of them would say, oh, yeah, I've come across this. And the question would be, did you ever have an amazing run? It would have to be an endurance run. So, you know, like half marathon or marathon, an amazing run where it's just like out of the box and it worked really well and you just can't explain it. And it just, you go afterwards, you go, well, where did that come from? And and you probably spend all your um, time afterwards trying to analyze what you did to, mm-hmm. to get that. And you can never quite pin it down. And of course, the idea is trying to reproduce it afterwards and nothing seems to quite explain it all. Um, I, I don't know if you have one of those, uh, Liz, and we haven't talked about this before, but I was thinking about in 2007, um, I did the Philly Marathon, Philadelphia Marathon um, with one of my friends, Nesta. He's actually been on here talking about um, talking about the Appalachian Trail uh, at one stage. We shared a hotel room and we were sort of, he was, he was a marathon learner a little bit at that point, but we were both about 315 marathoners and we, we shared a hotel and we were going to do the 2007 Philly Marathon. And we, we went to the expo and they had those, those time bands, uh, race bands that they give you with, with pace on. And we're about 315 marathoners. So I thought, oh, I'll take a, oh, I'll take a 310, I'll take a 310 uh, time band and, and, if, if it goes well, I'll try and gut it out for 310. This was always my, my ambition at the time. Um, I noticed Nesta, he took a band, the same as me, but he also, he took a band for three hours. Oh boy. And, and I said, are you serious? Like, are you, are you crazy? And he says, well, <laughs> he says, well, you know, you, you, you never know, but clearly he had in his mind that he was going to try if, if it felt like it was reachable, he's going to try for three hours. And I thought, oh, he's, he's, he's kind of um, young to the game. You know, he's new to the game. He'll find out. The marathon is a pretty harsh teacher. Um, he'll find out if he tries for it. Anyway, we're on the start line. And um, then he goes, oh, I've got to go to the toilet. And there's a queue for the toilet. Um, if, if the start goes, just go without me. So he went off and the start went. And I went off without him. And I thought, well... You know, I'll see him at the end. That's it. Because it's a big marathon. It's about 10,000 in Philadelphia, I think. So I'm running along. I'm working hard and I'm about on the limit. And at about 14 miles, so just over halfway, um, my buddy Nesta comes running up beside me. says, oh, hi, how are you going? I'm, I'm going to try and push on. You want to you step it up a little bit? And I'm right on the edge trying to run a sort of th- 310, 315 pace. And I'm thinking, no, 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 I'll just, I'll just sit at this pace. And he says, oh, I'm going to try and, and push on a little bit. And, and so uh, over halfway, he's still at my pace. And I think I ended up running about 312, 13. He ended up running 258. He just got faster and faster and faster. One of the out and backs, I was going in to the, to the turn at about 30 kilometers and he was coming out. So he's probably, uh, I don't know, less than a K ahead of me, but, but he was moving. He was just picking up everybody. And I thought if he doesn't crash and he could still crash, if he doesn't crash, he's going to do something amazing. And he ended up running 258. And I remember looking at him thinking, well, what did you do? Because <laughs> we came into the, we came into the marathon trend the same. 
sort of rehearse the same about the same speed. So you're kind of me, except you've just done something that I couldn't imagine myself doing. You know what? Well, oh, I guess one of the things he did was he believed that it was possible. So he really believed it, whereas I sort of didn't. I was, to some extent, I was limited by my experience because you know, I've experienced marathons where you hit the wall and those you, you got to be respectful. Um, and, and he wasn't, and he sort of believed that he could do it. Um, suddenly he went from being a 315 marathon to being a sub three marathon runner. And I asked him how, you know, how did he do that? Cause I wouldn't mind trying to do that. And he couldn't explain it. And, and I guess the thing is it's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of it is preparation and some of it is getting ready. And some of it is mental and believing that you can do it. And I guess he believed that he could do it. And I didn't really believe that I could do it. Fundamentally, I thought, well, you know, good for me is 310. Well, you go out 310 pace, you're conservative to 310 pace. Your brain tells you to slow down if you get too quick. And not for him. He, he then ran, I think he ran like three or four sub three marathons after that. Um, be, because it became like sub three was his, his only target at that point. Mm-hmm. Was like, no, that's what, that's what I run now. Well, on knowing Nestor, um, I I feel like he often just believes that he can tough it out, and, and I don't think like necessarily that that um, th- that running those sub threes are easy for him. I just think that he's like ready to muscle through it if he has to. Well, that's kind of the impression I get because. You know, I haven't known Nestor as long as you have. I definitely wasn't in the club in 2007. And I've seen Nestor run sub three on like maybe not really ideal training where he was, you know, not always at workouts. Um, He still ran sub three or close to three or, or, or whatever he did that time. I think everybody's got one of those experiences, haven't they, where you can't really explain it because because we don't understand all the factors, I think, or it's just, it's, it's a, it's a recipe of a mixture of things that are very complicated. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what endures sort of the book we're going to talk about kind of illustrates to us. Here are some pieces, but it's complicated. Yep. And of course, if it was easy, it wouldn't be half as much fun. So hi, and welcome to Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review running books to help you decide if you'd like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running and maybe inspire you to try something new or different. My name is Alan, and with my co-host Liz, we're going to talk today about a very interesting book called Endure by Alex Hutchinson. Endure Mind, Body, and the Curious Elastic Limits of Human Performance explores all the science that has been done to find out what limits endurance performance. The book has a total of 13 chapters divided into three parts. The three parts are Mind and Muscle, Limits, and Limit Breaker. We'll we'll go over the uh, 13 chapters uh, during our chat today. 
So a little bit about Alex. So Alex Hutchinson holds a PhD in physics from the University of Cambridge and has worked as a researcher for the U.S. National Security Agency. He lives in Toronto, Canada. Yay, a fellow Canadian. He's a columnist for Outside Magazine and has been a longtime columnist for Runner's World. A National Magazine award winner, he is a regular contributor to the New Yorker Online, pens the weekly Jockology column in the Toronto Globe and Mail, and writes for the New York Times. 538 recently named him one of their favorite running science geeks. Alex is a great runner too. He was a two-time finalist in the 1500 meter at the Canadian Olympic trials and represented Canada internationally in track, cross country, road racing, and mountain running competitions. So unfortunately, we couldn't uh, get a hold of Alex to be on the podcast today. So um, it's going to be uh, just me and Alan. Oh no, we have to do all the work. Yes, and all the thoughts that pop into our head while we're talking about Endure. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of used to being lazy and just asking uh, <laughs> asking the author the questions and then just sitting back and letting them do all the work. Yeah, to, today we're going to have to do a little bit more work than that. So uh, basically Endure is really, uh, Alex kind of goes over all the science regarding a particular topic. And so, I mean, we're not going to talk about every bit of science that he mentions, so we thought what we would do is like pick out things that were interesting to us in um, in each chapter. So uh, we each get to get to pick like maybe one or two things. So uh, hopefully these uh, these little tidbits will help you guys out or make you in awe of what uh, what runners are capable of. Yeah, and I think I think once you and I think once you get to the end of the book, you go well. Okay, if I put bits of all of that together to make up the ideal run or the best endurance performance. Um, I can see why I don't understand why sometimes it goes wrong and um, why sometimes it goes really well for no apparent reason that's different. Just going back to my original story. The the book kind of uses as bookends the Kipchoge, uh, the first breaking two Nike-sponsored attempt at breaking two hours for the marathon with Elliot Kipchoge on the Monza track, uh, following the cars and having the paces and the laser line and basically trying to break the limit, redefine the the, the ability to endure. Um, so the, they actually, what they do is like the, the first time they talk about it, they talk about the practice run because uh, they did a practice run for the Breaking Two project, which was a half marathon. And uh, it seemed like almost, I mean, except for Kipshogi, who uh, like ran under um, under an hour, yeah. uh, which I guess, you know, that's kind of what he's going to have to do for the whole marathon. Uh, and he seemed to be like fine with the pace. Uh, I think he said it was like a 60% effort. I know, which is, which <laughs> is like just mind blowing. Uh, but it seemed like all his other, because they were in, they were still in their training cycle when they did this kind of like test, what they were doing is just kind of testing out the logistics, like the, the, uh, the pacing formation and, and, you know, running on the track and the weather and those kinds of things. And it just seemed like his other teammates were, all, were just, you know, some of them didn't even run the whole half, like they kind of dropped out. <laughs> um, which was kind of like just telling about how intimidating it is or how yeah, yeah. how far out there it is. Yes. Mm. And um like what a big 
difference there was between uh, everybody else and uh, Eliud Kipchoge because he was he was one of three people that was attempting to break the the two hours. They had sort of not placed their bets on one person. They they had kind of chosen three really high level athletes. Pretty soon, it, it it's kind of developed into the Eliud Kipchoge show. He was yeah. the guy who was going to do it. Yeah. Or try to do it. So I guess we should talk about chapter one. So the first part is mind and muscle. So yeah. um, the first collection of chapters are about mind and muscle. The first one is called The Unforgiving Minute. Talks about several stories of runners that paced themselves to great performances and hit, hints at the complexity of pacing, which uh, we I guess we learned about in... Um, in Matt's book recently. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, my take home from the first chapter was, and, and Alex actually says this, you can't link the will to endure. So your ability to endure to any one specific physical factor. There are a whole bunch of physical factors at play, and we're going to go through some of them. And some of them are clearly required, but you can't correlate the endurance ability with, with any one specific thing. And the story that I retained was the story of um, John Landy in the um, in the attempt to break the four minute mile, where he actually said at one stage that he he wasn't sure that the four minute mile was achievable because he kept running four or two, and he ran like three or four of these attempts at four or two, and then um, after Bannister managed to get under four. Uh, he then took the world record away from Bannister very quickly. And he ran like just under 359, which 402 to 359 is like a massive, massive improvement. But he did that in within a few months. I think he ran just under 358 because I wrote down 357.9. Quite right. 357.9. So it rounded, rounded to 358. Yeah, it shows that you've got some physical stuff that you need to bring to the party, but you also, there's something going on in your head that you need to bring to the party as well. And how do you organize yourself to do that? Because if no one's ever done it before, how do you believe that it could be done? And to some extent, it points to the, the difference, a little bit the difference between Elliot Kipchoge and some of the other runners, because I think he genuinely believed that the, the two-hour marathon is possible. So I guess um, we should maybe talk about some of the human limits because the next chapter was the human machine. This is more talking about the, you know just the, the body and the physiology and, and how do you measure the, the things that are important to to endurance. There's some history lessons I think and and some of the science background. The, the key the key uh, bit that I took home was the study on VO2 max. So the the emergence of Okay, there's a limit to how much oxygen you can you can process, and um, I think it was in 1923 a guy called A.V. Hill produced a, a, a paper showing that there there was this limit and that this was one of the physiological uh, factors that limited people's ability to to produce energy, muscle energy. It was the the origin of what we all now talk about in terms of VO2 max. Yeah, I think um, the tidbit that kind of stood out to me the most, like, yes, there was there was all the great, um, you know, science of, of uh, VO2 max and all that. But one of the interesting things that 
that I learned in this chapter was that the study of human endurance started at Harvard University in the business building because scientists thought if they understood fatigue in athletes, then they could find ways to make workers more productive. So I guess that's how they got all the money for the research because, you know, like there wasn't always money in running. Um, it was like an amateur sport and you always need money to do science. So yeah, that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, they're using the financial benefits of it. I think that, that came out in the heat chapter as well, a bit later where they were working out that, you know, they're having to give people cooling down breaks while they were working. And they mm -hmm. actually did some studies to say, oh, actually we don't. We only need to give certain people cooling down breaks. Some people are good at dealing with heat. Yeah. And, and so, that's how you know, the dollar factor drives people. Oh, we can get more work out of these people if we do these studies. Mm -hmm. And that's how they found out that you could acclimate to the heat and that it takes about two weeks because they wanted to figure out like, you know, and you got to, you got to give it to these business people. Like they were, um, they were studying miners because a lot of the miners were dying. Yeah, they wanted them not to die, obviously. Uh, so they wanted to know, like, well, how could we? They didn't want them to have to work less, though. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, you got to give it there. There it is, yeah. those, those business people. I mean, I guess we should thank them for all the things we know about the human body. But at the same time, it's not because they were studying it for a noble cause or anything. It's pretty tough in the day, though, way back in the day, like the early 1900s, trying to find out, you know, uh, what chemicals are appearing in muscles once they get tired and things like that. And these people were pretty pioneering. They were really out mm -hmm. on the on the edge. It's not like today where you could you can basically just take a blood sample and analyze it for all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, having to. Put, I don't know, put cows on treadmills and exhaust them and then uh, euthanize them and then trying to extract the stuff from their muscles and find out what's going on. Today, you're not even allowed to do things like that because there, there are laws about, you know, animals and treating animals humanely. So I, I don't yeah. even think you can do some of the things that they did back in the day. You know, they didn't have all these fancy things that we have now. Like they didn't um, have ethics boards. They didn't have that doing either. Stuff. <laughs> they didn't have that either. They also used to experiment on themselves quite a bit in a very, uh, what looked like dangerous to me way sometimes or just very unpleasant like they would do muscle biopsies on themselves uh, so they would they would go and do some strenuous physical activity and then they would like poke themselves with a really large bore needle to get a, a tissue sample of the muscles and see like how much glycogen is left in them or something like that which is yeah, yeah i mean got to give it to those scientists like they were very passionate Moving on from the, the human machine, the, the next chapter was um, called The Central Governor. Now that we've read lots of books, we've come across this, this concept of the central governor, which is, you know, your brain, the, the, the idea of it is that your brain acts as a controller and um, stops you from uh, using all your energy down to zero because, you know, you need to keep your heart beating, you need to keep your respiration going and you mm -hmm. need to keep a little bit of energy left for the, to get away from the saber-toothed tiger that jumps out of the, the forest and is going to eat you and so you know there was a development of a theory around the the the, the brain as applying a sort of protective central control on your mm -hmm. physiology so that you know you might think oh i'm running and i've run to complete exhaustion but actually you haven't you only think you do because your brain's sort of decided to, re to th that you're at the reserve point and uh, so it tells you that you're, you're you're out and you have to you have to stop 
This was developed by Tim Noakes. And at the time when he, um, when he developed this, it was like very controversial, but now it, it's, it's kind of widely accepted. It's not, uh, there's no more debate about if the brain affects endurance. It's more like, how does it affect endurance? Which, which is something that we don't really know yet. The story that kind of stood out to me in that chapter was, and I'd heard this one before, uh, was an ultra runner named Diane Van Deren. And she had a neurological deficit that meant that she had um, like a poor memory, impaired sense of direction and difficulty keeping track of time. And so um, she ended up running like all of these crazy endurance events. And she just wouldn't be able to tell you how far she'd gone or for how long she'd been running. And she just was a really great athlete. Like it was like she had no limits, I guess. Um, And maybe part of that was because she didn't have that sort of barrier of knowing like, well, I've been running for 12 hours. So she had one less, I guess, um, thing to contend with in her brain. No sense of control, nothing controlling her and yeah. putting her brakes. She's got no, <laughs> she's like a, a, a monocar with no brakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing for me was um, Alex tells a story about talking with Noakes. I don't know if it was Alex in particular who talked with Noakes because Noakes is from the modern era. Noakes is asked, you know, what's the what's the evidence for the, the best evidence that you've got for for the for your brain as a as a central controlling system that protects you, and he says, well, the most obvious thing for him, the finishing spurt at the end of races. So if you if you get to the end of the marathon, you go, oh, I'm dead. Oh, I'm slowing mm-hmm. down. I'm slowing down. Oh, my legs are finished. And then you turn the corner, and there's a crowd cheering, and there's a finishing line. And not only that, but you see a guy coming up who's going to challenge you for your spot coming up behind you. Suddenly you find something. Mm-hmm. You might not find enough to beat the guy, but you'll find something to accelerate. And even when you think you've got no energy left, you can you always have the ability to do a little spurt because you can see the end. So it's, it's a psychological thing rather than a physical thing to some extent, um, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And it leads into, I guess, the next chapter, which is more about all the um, all the things that kind of go into your brain and um, like your sense of effort. The chapter four is called The Conscious Quitter. And um, they talk about some, I guess, hypotheses. Uh, in particular, this guy, Samuel Marcora, uh, he developed the psychobiological model, which was Muscle fatigue plus other non-physical contributors uh, lead to a sense of effort. And then that sense of yeah. effort will lead you to, to stop. Yeah, I felt, I felt there was a lot of parallels with um, the discussion we had with, with um, Matt Fitzgerald a couple of weeks ago uh, about uh, pacing and mm-hmm. relative perceived effort. And in fact, this comes up uh, in, this, in this chapter, um, the Borg scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scale of relative perceived effort developed by Gunnar Borg. And the idea being that there's a, there's a mental process. And it reminded me of the, the, the conversation I had with, with Matt about, I find it hard to think that I've actually made a decision to quit or that if my pace is going down, that it's me who's deciding to do it. But there's clearly something mental at play. Um, it's sort of obvious in this chapter that they do things where they give people mental tests so they'll say, okay, do this simple mental test, uh, simple but boring, 
you know, you got to react on a, on a TV screen or something on a computer. They'll, they'll do, you got to do this for an hour. So you got to just, it's just monotonous and you've got to focus and you've got, it occupies your brain. And then they send them out to do a run. And then they compare that with um, um, standard runs where they don't do the testing and they, they, they find that the, the physical performance goes down, even though you've just sat in a chair. Or, yeah. You haven't exerted yourself physically, but you've only, you've only exerted your, your brain basically. Yeah. And they also did tests where um, they would, you know, flash uh, things on a screen, but like not long enough that you could consciously uh, sort of register them, but th they were being registered somewhere in your brain because if they were flashing like uh, sad faces, then those athletes didn't perform as well on a time to exhaustion test as the one that were flashed like smiling faces. Yeah, and they were, they were able to prove that that kind of man, positive mantras uh, work mm -hmm. and smiling while you're running mm -hmm. um, works. Apparently, it decreases your perception of effort. And, and, and you go, yes, how, how's this working? Well, what it's doing is it's, if you talk about relative perceived effort, it's working on the perceived, the effort itself's not changing, but your interpretation of that effort is changing. And it's your interpretation. It's the thing that happens in your brain that tends to be the first filter. I think, I think people in, in management, people used to always say, if you think you can do something, you're right. It's, it's very trite and it's sort of, it's very sort of light and throwaway. But, but the idea is, you know, if you choose your attitude to be positive, if you think you can do it, then you're right. And if you think you can't, you're also right. So you're the same person. You're just thinking differently, which is kind of cool. I mean, it just means you've got to bring your best mental game as well as your best physical game. Exactly. But it's not always easy because yeah. you, I, I don't know about you, but you, you kind of feel that you're not always in control of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do kind of feel like I'm not always in control of that. I mean, you know, it's like you, you can't just will yourself to be positive, but in a way you can, I mean, it's just, it's a little more work than just being like, okay, I'm going to be positive today. It's sort of like you have to catch yourself when you're being negative and slowly retrain yourself to think um, you know, in a way that's more productive rather than uh, self-destructive. Yeah. So I guess we'll move on to um, part two, which was all about limits. And yeah. chapter five was all about pain. Yay. Yay, pain. Um, and I mean, the reason for this is because enduring pain is key to endurance performance. Um, I guess like one of the things that, uh, that probably every new runner has experienced is, um, you know, you start running and you, you know, you're, you're a bit like your first run kind of to, well, I'll say in to exhaustion, which might be just like you ran for a minute or you ran for 30 seconds and you're almost like overwhelmed by the amount of effort it took. Um, and then like, just think how quickly you get to a point where you're just running endlessly, um, maybe at the same pace, maybe a little bit slower, but like you can just run forever. And usually the diff, like the difference between the paces, it, like it can't just all be physical because it, it happens too quickly. It's like, you know, like f physical adaptations take usually a, a few weeks, I think, for you to recover from workouts and stuff. And if, when you start running, it's like you get better almost like daily every, every couple of days. It's like, oh, I yeah. feel 
the idea being that your mind your mind's adjusting to it um, mm-hmm. quicker almost quicker than your body's adjusting to it yep your perceptions never you've never had that it's totally new to you so you go whoa what's this to begin with it's impossible yeah very quickly you go well, no it's not impossible it happens all the time and i just can just deal with it yeah you you know that you know that effort is not not going to kill you um so i i liked the um they talk about a cyclist. So, okay, he's not a runner, but I think a lot of people might've known his name or maybe they just did if they live with a cyclist like I do. You're going to talk about <laughs> Jens Voigt? Yes, yes. Apparently, um, he was not, I mean, he's not physiologically like destined to be the greatest cyclist mm-hmm. and he was. And apparently he believes that it's because his pain threshold is 10 to 20% higher than his competitors. In other words, he's just able to. He's prepared to suffer more. Exactly. Yep. And that was his, basically that was his edge. And um, I mean, he's, he's a great cyclist and he was famous for the slogan, shut up legs, because apparently that's what he would tell himself in races. Yeah. I think most of our club kind of know, know the phrase. They just don't know where it comes from because you hear them saying, (laughs) shut up legs. So often, mm-hmm. and and I guess the idea is that that um, you've got to practice to some extent pushing your limit to to for physically for you for you to adapt. So so if you want to get better, you've got to push your limit a little bit. Uh, you've got to push the envelope so you can make an, a physical adaptation. But also you've got to experience the hurt. I think Matt Fitzgerald, when we were talking to him one time, he called it "embrace the suck." <laughs> which is basically your, your mind needs to understand what it feels like. Um, so as well as your, your muscles need to adjust, mm-hmm. um, your mind needs to go, okay, this is what it feels like. It's okay. It's not, I'm not going to die. I don't need to slow down. And then there's a mental aspect to that. Um, I guess that's why Matt, Matt has, um, these prefontaine workouts in his on pace training program basically you have to practice suffering to some extent mm-hmm. yeah that's the um that's the idea an interesting thing in pain and i'm always interested in these these scientific things that look a bit dodgy and a bit weird <laughs> um is um apparently they did some experiments with people where they killed their pain reception completely i think through drugs i think it might have been fentanyl they gave them fentanyl so they couldn't feel any pain whatsoever and said, okay, go out and run and uh, see how fast you can go. And they said, well, they're going to have no pain threshold. So they're going to run really, really fast. They'll be fantastic. And actually they were pretty hopeless because they had no like measuring stick uh, to pace themselves because yeah. part of how you pace yourself is the, the pain feedback that you get. So you mm-hmm. get this amount of pain, you're going, okay, uh, I'm getting practiced. I can deal with more pain now. Um, I'm going to pace a bit faster. But when you've got no feedback whatsoever, they were just blowing themselves out in you know a couple of k because they were get they were getting no feedback. So it didn't mm. didn't really work. So you don't need the pain. Yeah. So you need the pain. You just have to need to. You just need to learn to deal with the pain. So that's you know kind of too bad for us. We're just going to have to suffer if we want to run fast. Yeah. Um, so actually, but the, the other thing, like there was a little tidbit that's sort of like the light at the end of the tunnel, because um, it, it said in that chapter that in the heat of competition, athletes benefit from stress induced analgesia. So basically, you're the, the same, well, either the same pain threshold is going to produce faster race results, or, uh, you know, you're gonna um, hopefully feel less 
pain for this is you i guess this is your endorphins or whatever yes your natural um high drugs kicking Mm -hmm. in yeah like all your dopamine and your endocannabinoids and all those all those systems that have you have you experienced that um i've experienced it but maybe not that i would make it sound like it's not painful but you know how sometimes when you have a race and it, it was just like it just seemed to go really well it's as if it's as if for part of the race you weren't really there or like the time sped up so like it doesn't feel like the suffering is the same as let's say in a workout because I know for me that sometimes on race day, I can, I can run a speed, let's say for a 5k, um, that I'm not like, I'm not easily able to run in workouts, even though the workouts have like the distance of at that pace, much shorter than in a race. And I get breaks in between. And sometimes like that plays with my head because I'll be like running a workout. Let's say like one of the harder ones I find for me is something like, five times a kilometer at 5k pace, or like when you start to go even higher than that, like, like, uh, four times 1200 or like three times 1600. I just find those workouts so difficult. And like, it's a bit of a toss up whether or not I can do them, but then in a race, I can run that pace for a whole 5k and there's no breaks in between my one case. Yeah. So like, I don't really understand. <laughs> But yeah, I, I guess maybe that's what I'm benefiting from. It's like the the stress of the race and the competition. Like there's something in that. Definitely is. There's got to be something. I, I see you training a, a lot. You seem to be a different a different animal when you're on race day. Yeah, which is really strange. Like I feel quite unnatural on race day, and I'll, I'll look at you, and you seem quite natural. Like you've got you've got all your warm ups worked out. You're in the groove. Um, and I'm going, Oh, okay. What do I do? How do I feel? And, and whereas in training, I tend to be leading, leading laps and you're sitting in behind, you're going, All okay, the I'll, time. I'll, I'll just follow you <laughs> unless you go too fast. And then I'll just, cause you're silly, you go off too fast sometimes and I'll drop back. <laughs> yeah, it's true. What I've found is, is, um, sometimes I'll be doing if particularly when I'm doing long distance training, when I'm not fully, fully trained up. So I'm still mm-hmm. trying to push the long runs and maybe do a bit of speed in the long runs. And I'll get into 30 plus kilometers and everything's hurting. So just think, oh, my legs are so sore. Mm-hmm. My ankles are hurting. My shoulders, I'm not, I need to get my posture right. My shoulders are starting to ache. I'm shuffling. And then half a K later or one K later, suddenly I, I can't feel anything. I feel my whole body feels just, not sore at all, just perfectly almost okay. like you've recovered. Yeah. But you never stopped running. Uh, no, I've never, I haven't stopped running and I'm not going any slower. Usually I'm not going any quicker either, but mm-hmm. um, I'm just going at the same speed, still moving. And now nothing feels sore. It's almost like somebody's just dropped some analgesics on me. And I think that's probably my brain is down that. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to it. Um, I guess, I guess like, since you talked about all your muscles being sore, we should go to chapter six, which is yeah. all about muscle. This chapter, uh, talks all about it's set. It talks about muscle, but it says like, you can't really disconnect the influence of muscle and the influence of your brain. Like they're kind of intertwined and, and we don't really know what contributes to, to 
how much of, uh, you know, of our perceived effort, let's say, in, in a race or in a training run. But one of the key points that sort of stood out to me was um, they mentioned that in a 100 mile race, which it, for me is a race that I imagine, you know, okay, so yes, there's a big mental component to, to ultra races like that, because, you know, to be able to run through the night and without sleep and all that, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a big mental ask. But also, I would figure that at 100 miles, like your muscles are pretty much destroyed, especially, you know, six. Yeah. Yeah. Like your, your quads and everything, you never run nearly as far in a, in a training as you do on race day for a hundred mile race. I mean, um, you know, most, uh, most athletes that share their, their training, uh, they'll say that they do maybe back-to-back long runs. Uh, but you know, they'll mm-hmm. be like, you know, back-to-back 30 K or something, but mm-hmm. I mean, a hundred miles is 160 K and apparently you're using about 60% of your muscle power at mile 95. So, um, this is this thing I say to people all the time. This is where it comes from, where I say to people, when you think you're completely exhausted, you have 40% left. Oh, That's okay. That's yeah. Cause people say, Oh, I can't go any further. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. You probably can. It's yeah. It's interesting. And that was a pretty interesting thing because we watched, um, we watched a hundred mile finishers at the Quebec mega trail when we went in June, mm-hmm. because, um, like the second day. So the, the hundred mile participants, they, I think they had started on the Friday night. Yeah. And there so were a this, couple of them coming in, like one would come in every half an hour or so. Yeah. The stragglers yeah. were coming in on the Sunday morning. So they were two nights that they ran through. Out. They've yeah. been out. Yes. And they look just absolutely like zombies. I mean, some of them they look yeah. exactly like that. If you've imagined the zombie apocalypse <laughs> and put zombies coming in one at a time, that's exactly what they look like. And I mean, they had, uh, they were allowed pacers, I think at the end. So most of them were running with somebody that I guess was just making sure that they don't trip over everything and that they yeah. turn in the right direction and that they follow the route. But like, they just yeah. looked absolutely like spent. And I, you know, you would think that there's no way that their muscles have 40% left, but I yeah. guess they do. I think that there's a there's a statement in there that they do some experiments where they train they they exhaust either animals or, or people completely so that they can't move anymore, and then they come along and then with some electrodes and then they mm-hmm. stimulate their muscle and they go and it twitches and they go look still still has the ability still works. to fire. still working. <laughs> you guys are sandbagging. <laughs> um, yeah. What what do you do with that? It, it's it's. It's one thing being at the end of a hundred mile run and going, well, actually I still have about 40 miles left in me. It's another thing going out and being able to get that 40 miles worth of effort, Mm -hmm. being able to make it, make it appear. Or to go 40, 40% faster or whatever. And, and, and it, it starts to speak to, you know, the human machine as a muscle and then the, the central controller, your brain and how, how it works, because I think it's in the muscle section where they, they give the example of the, the and it's documented, uh, it's been documented several times of guys lifting cars off people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an accident, a car falls on somebody and their, their father arrives or something and their kid's under the car and their father lifts the, the car off the kid. And mm-hmm. afterwards you go, okay, lift that car again. It's impossible. No yeah. one can lift it. 
It's like in the heat of the moment they did, yeah. but normally in, in, they the, can't. The, there's a crisis which takes off the men, the normal mental controls somehow, um, which you can never normally do, and this allows the real, the true amount of force. And they actually go through. I think Alex goes through the analysis of saying, well, could that muscle actually? Could, can these mu muscles actually lift this amount of weight? And he works out that they could. Um, they, they, in theory, they could because you only have to lift one side of the car to slide yeah. the body out, mm -hmm. and so it equals. And you don't have to lift it, doesn't it all equal the, way. the weight of the whole car, but it, it speaks to the fact that there's a mental process going on, and if you take the controls off, you get a different result. So for for a marathon, I'll need um, I'll need to put your partner Andre. I'll need to put him under a car. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And, and when you get 5k from the end of your marathon, I'll say, I don't think he's going to make it. You've got to get lift the car <laughs> and you'll race to the end of the marathon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> Oxygen. Oxygen. Chapter seven. So um, chapter seven talks uh, all about oxygen from um, world records for holding your breath and um, apnea diving. Oh, yes. Deep, deep diving. Yeah. And uh, they also talk about altitude and um, like the first attempts to climb Everest without oxygen. So there's a lot of information in this chapter. Um yeah. Yeah, one of the, um, I, th I think that it sort of starts with talking about like deep, deep diving uh, world records, and they're pretty amazing. Um, and they also have a world record for static apnea, which is just uh, like, just put your face in a bucket of water. Basically. <laughs> exactly. Put your face in a bucket of water and hold your breath for as long as you can. Yeah. And the record is 11 minutes. I mean, it's bonkers. You can lift your was... head anytime that you want, and somebody's able to to overcome that. Mm -hmm. Eleven minutes. And and apparently, your your brain tells you to lift your head way, 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 way before you die. You run out before you run out of oxygen. There's a whole mm -hmm. series of things that happen to you, which is quite fascinating. But you get this massive urge to 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 lift your head up after about I don't know a minute or something um, that you have to resist. And these people are able to resist this and your brain's telling you, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And you have to resist it. Mm -hmm. and, and then you go through into another phase. Apparently don't yeah, try apparently. this at home. Anybody mm -mm. do not try this at home. It's incredible. And, and when you do that, you go into another phase, which is more, you can, your heart rate is slow and your metabolism is low and, and you can, you can sustain for, for a long time. If you've trained to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and what it's saying is that in fact it's not your it's it's not your muscles that lack oxygen that causes you to slow down but it's the lack of oxygen in your brain and if you get less oxygen in your brain your brain screams at you to slow down mm -hmm. um, it's like because, a panic response yeah it's a panic it's a panic failsafe so in in fact you can train to work off much less oxygen. And they talk about altitude and how you account, acclimatize to altitude. And they thought originally it was impossible to go to um, the, the summit of Everest where there's only one third of the oxygen level um, without oxygen bottles. But, you know, 
now it's proven that you can and people do it all mm-hmm. the time. And there's apparently also like a, a like a genetic component to altitude and um, like who will sort of, I guess, deal uh, more yeah. easily with altitude and stuff that I guess you can't really um, choose. You just, I mean, you know, your genetics are your genetics, but um, you can you can train for altitude. And um, I know that that Alex uh, had mentioned a story of himself where he lived in Australia at an altitude of 1900 feet. And um, he was like underperforming at the half marathon. And he never thought about altitude because in the sort of like altitude training camp world, they like it's sort of um, understood that if you're going to go to altitude to train for the for the benefits of creating extra red blood cells that apparently uh, the sweet spot is like 2400 meters or something yeah, like that which like is maybe five what to seven thousand feet is what I'm yeah going yeah so head. and so like 1900 feet is not really considered significant if you're yeah. training at altitude and so um alex was kind of like not thinking that that was limiting his performance but uh, so what he ended up finding out is that it it does affect your performance like it's just, you know, I guess that's not like the, the optimized altitude you'd aim for if you're going to go do some altitude training, but, uh, but it's not that, that anything below that will not affect you at all because it will. And there's some wacky stories about balloonists in the, uh, in the 1800s, uh, going up to heights and having crazy effects, um, not realizing there's not, there's not enough oxygen up there. Well, I guess in the 1800s, it's almost like their technology was was um advancing too quickly for their knowledge of the atmosphere maybe because they used balloons to go and study the atmosphere i guess they didn't know too much about it before they went up there yeah and uh natural selection would select then select the balloonists that could tolerate the low oxygen versus the ones that couldn't i guess moving straight on from the oxygen chapter there's a chapter on heat and dealing with heat this is um, this was the chapter near and dear to my heart because I ha- seem to have some trouble dealing with heat running as opposed to you who have seem to have no trouble at all. But um, what fascinated me about uh, chapter eight on heat was just how much of a furnace the human body actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, the numbers, I found it difficult to believe that if I get this right, the numbers are like, if you take like 100 calories in food, you get 25 calories of energy out of that in terms of effort. And then you get 75 calories of heat. So you get three times the amount of heat that you are of work. Oh, wow. That's terrible. <laughs> three quarters inefficient, 25% efficiency. That's horrendous. Wow. That's why I was, that's why it kind of shocked me. Yeah, that's even worse than I thought. Yeah, I I do. Um, so the the little tidbit I had written down was um, th- well, obviously bigger bodies generate more heat. And France's National Institute of Sport noticed that between 1990 and 2011, marathon runners shrank from five foot eight and 131 pounds yeah. to five foot seven and 124 pounds. I'm guessing this, this is like males because females are. I don't are think they actually shrank. I think there was just, there was just different, different people. The yeah. People what they, yeah. No, they didn't shrink, but like they kind of nat- naturally selected yeah. to be smaller, be smaller because, because they're more heat efficient. 
Yeah. And I guess like that's what came with the introduction of like money into, uh, you know, prize money to yeah. the races. So, um, you know, you have people um, racing for the prize money and uh, I guess that's what happened. The winners uh, started to be smaller and smaller. And it takes about two weeks on average of hot weather practice to get adjusted. Mm-hmm. So you can adjust. And acclimatizers fall into three groups. They found this because they were trying to work the miners as, as hard as possible, I think, the, mm-hmm. the discussion we are having earlier. Studies show three groups of acclimatizers. Some people who take the normal 14 days, other people who take only seven days, and other people who take only four days to acclimatize. So, you know, when the people were working the mines, they wanted more, more people who would acclimatize quickly to hot weather. Yeah, if they exactly. had to go and shovel in the furnaces or something, they wanted these four-day acclimatizers so that they could get more work out of them. Yeah, again, all this knowledge that we know because of industry that just wants to get more work out of people. But I guess we're happy to know all this stuff anyway because it's useful for us athletes. Yeah, I guess the motivation was was a bit dodgy, but it's good to have the information. Moving naturally from heat, we get a chapter on thirst. So thirst is like Alex goes into a lot of detail about, about thirst because, you know, running, uh, went through a lot of phases, uh, used to be that, uh, marathon runners would not drink. Like if you were like a high, high caliber marathon runner, like you don't drink drink, anything at all. You don't drink anything like Alberto Salazar. I think he was, he didn't drink anything during, during his marathons. Um, I don't know if, if later in his career he did, but at least at the beginning he didn't. And then it progressed into like, oh, you need to drink more because, because like your thirst, uh, your thirst drive is, is not gonna keep you well hydrated, uh, because they did studies and people would finish races lighter than they started, which meant that they were dehydrated, but then you had a problem of, um, like some people were getting hyponatremia, which is just their uh, salt in their blood was just getting too uh, diluted because they were, they were consuming too much. Exactly. And that causes a whole bunch of health problems and could potentially lead to death. So the recommendation changed again to like drink to thirst, but I think there's still some, you know, some, um, some people that like wonder because it's not beneficial to be dehydrated for more than a certain percent for performance. Uh, but one of the things that uh, the, the little um, piece of information that stuck out to me was that uh, they mentioned that water from the breakdown of carbohydrates is seen by your body as like new water. So like we're carbo loaded, but each gram of carbohydrate stores three grams of water with it. But when that, when we burn that, that glycogen and the water is released, then your body thinks like, oh, well, look at that. Like I just got some new water. So, so shut off the thirst mechanism. Cause I don't need to drink yet because I got some new water. So, um, that's why apparently you don't feel thirsty right away while you're exercising. Cause there is always a delay. Like uh, I'm not thirsty right away when I exercise. What I found was there's a lot of really fascinating information on this. And at the end of the chapter, I wasn't sure whether I'm supposed to drink more or less <laughs> <laughs> because because it, it sort of says, well, if you lose 2% of your, your body weight, your performance will start to decrease. Oh, and by the way, don't wait until you're thirsty because thirst follows water loss and you will be losing water before you get thirsty. Oh, and by the way, don't drink too much because you'll get uh, the problem with diluting out the sodium. 
hypoxemia, as it's called, and then you might die or you might have trouble. And oh, by the way, when you lose weight and you weigh yourself afterwards, it's not just water loss because people go, well, you know, you're sweating, that's water, and you're breathing out, that's water, and if you pee, that's water. Mm -hmm. um, apparently, it's not just water loss because it's conversion of carbohydrate as well. A breakdown so you, you've got breakdown substances that and you're you're and you breathe them out and fat yeah and, and effectively fat. you breathe them out yeah you when you're breathing you, out carbon dioxide. Acids, carbon dioxide you're taking mm. carbon from the carbohydrates smashing it all up sending it around <laughs> your blood back into your lungs and breathing it out that that's all fascinating but then i'll look at the end of the chapter and go oh what am i gonna do <laughs> <laughs> And, and also there's a psychological factor on, on thirst as well mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, feeling thirsty versus needing water. The yeah. two, two things are different. So I think the idea is you drink some, um, if you get dehydrated a bit, that's okay. Uh, your body is designed to dehydrate under, under work and, and can cope with a certain amount of it, but not too much. Mm -hmm. So you have to drink some, but uh, fuel, because that will help your water management. That was kind of about all I was able to take away from that. There was no and, and try not to feel thirsty, because apparently that'll decrease your performance. So don't it's look at people having thirsty. beers on the side of the road while you're <laughs> running along. Otherwise, you'll feel thirsty. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, it's a big chapter. And there's a lot of info there. And um, there are no recommendations. Basically, that's kind of how it ends. I mean, I guess, you know. Um, basically don't drink too much water because that's, that's not good. But, um, uh, yeah, I guess don't drink nothing either. Don't, yeah. Don't drink nothing. Yeah. And, and <laughs> try to understand historically how you perform and also, um, uh, behave according to the conditions as well. Mm -hmm. In the breaking two project, when they did their little, um, test half marathon, I think they also squeezed out everybody's clothing to see how much water loss they had, or they weighed everybody. I don't remember yeah. exactly how it went. Um, that would be a fun job. <laughs> what, what was your job in the breaking two? Oh, I was the guy who squeezed out all the clothing. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see many of those jobs being advertised, do you? No, you don't. Wanted no. clothes squeezer for experimental project. <laughs> yeah. Well, so anyway, that was something that they wanted to fine tune was um, how, how much fluid everybody lost so they could um, make sure that they are um, replacing it at the right rate for those conditions. Logical chapter following on from uh, chapter nine on thirst would mm -hmm. be chapter 10 on fuel. So yes, on food, they go, they go together. Yeah. As you, as you've already said, in fact, one and the same to some extent with, with respect to carbo loading, releasing water. It, it, they actually talk a lot about um, low carb, high fat diets because they were, you know, the, well, I guess they, they are a bit still popular right now. Is that kind of the paleo diet? Is that the, the... no, like paleo, I mean, I guess paleo is sort of, uh, sort of low carb, but no paleo is more like you eat like your ancestors. So like nuts okay. and things and you like you limit okay. grains, but it's not necessarily low carb. All right. So the low carb high fat diet is like the ketogenic diet. Oh, that's it. Yeah. 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 Because, 
Yeah, because it, you know, helps your your body ends up um, producing ketones from the breakdown of that, flat, that's, fats that's, when you have no carbs. That's us that are saying keto because um, Alex Hutchinson never says that, does he? He doesn't. No, he actually doesn't mention that at all in the book. He just calls it low carb, high fat. And um, it, he kind of explains like a little bit how the whole notion of, um, you know, athletes wanting to be more fat adapted kind of came about. And it was because, you know, you kind of hear that, oh, it's because like some of these really great elite athletes, elite endurance, um, uh, ultra marathoners, or in the case that he, um, he talked about was a guy named Evan Dunphy, who is a Canadian race walker that does the 50 kilometer race walk. And he, um, I mean, he performed really, really well. So, and he was apparently experimenting with this low carb, high fat diet. And so were, so was a a cycling team uh, that was mentioned in the book. And the, the thing is that like, that's how all this became popular because the idea is that if you can train your body to burn more fats, then you can last longer because glycogen, like you have a limited ability to store glycogen, which is like your carbohydrate storage but you have almost an infinite amount of fat. So, you know, in theory, it's a very logical assumption to say, I want to be able to burn a higher percentage of fat because you're always, you always kind of have a mix, like a certain percentage of carbohydrates that you're burning compared to fats at a certain intensity of exercise. The problem is when it's a really high intensity of exercise, you can't. And burn it quickly enough. Yeah, exactly. You can't access the fats, uh, quickly enough. So it's not beneficial, but in these longer distances, they're saying, well, it should be beneficial because it's more of an aerobic event anyway. So Alex looks at all of these different people that have, you know, tried these diets and what ended up uh, coming out of it was that the elites, yes, they tried, you know, they experimented, they did try these things. They did find that they were able to um, get their body to burn a higher percentage of fat. So they did have more access to fat burning. But what happened if they only followed a low carb, high fat diet was that they would lose a bit of their ability to burn carbs. And so that was, uh, that was not a detrimental. Yeah, it was detrimental to performance. And so in the end, what a lot of them ended up doing was they just ended up um, doing targeted little bouts of like, you know, you might do a workout in a low carbs state. Depletion run. Yeah, like a depletion run or something like that. And that will stimulate your ability to burn more fat. But overall, like they around hard training or races, they would consume carbs because those uh, contribute to good performance. Just like we always knew. Well, just like the pros always knew, but the rest of us didn't because we were like hung carbs up on king. the. <laughs> yes, that's what we've been saying. You know, <laughs> get the carbs in, fuel the training. Yeah, a couple of fascinating things around carbs were um, we saw we see the uh, the standard number now on on fueling at sixty grams per hour mm-hmm. with respect to carbs, but that apparently now in theory you can get to ninety grams using um a mixture of fructose and glucose because you get, there are two metabolic pathways for absorbing those. So you can get it like a double dip a little bit if you can tolerate that in terms of your, your digestive system. So you need to train for that. Another really interesting thing I saw was 
the effect of carbohydrates in your mouth or sugars in your mouth. But in fact, they said, if you take a mouthful of sugar solution and you Mm -hmm. rinse it in your mouth and you spit it out, you get a reaction as if you drunk it. Like it triggers, your brain triggers, tests it in your mouth and triggers an energy reaction. Yeah, like your brain thinks that there are more carbs coming because of the sweetness. Yeah. But it's not just the sweetness because when they gave like um, the sugar-free alternative, because, you know, you can get like Coke Zero, let's yes. say, which is like- right. They give you not- carbs and you can't, you can't taste them. The brain somehow knows that they're there. Yeah, because it'll know the difference between the sports drink that has the sugar and the sports drink that has the substitute. And, and not only That's that- fascinating. Not only that, but if they, if they give you- the glucose by an injection instead of putting it into your mouth, it doesn't work. Yeah, that was because your that brain doesn't your brain doesn't see kind of can't detect it going in, which which was kind of a I thought fascinating stuff. Yeah. So so uh, you know what I what I did took as a take home is if I'm having digestive problems at the end of the um, marathon, I usually have difficulty keeping gels and things down, and, and I get really queasy stomach that. If I get desperate and I think it's worth a try, I'll just rinse my mouth with the drink and spit mm-hmm. it out. If I think it's going to make me ill, yeah. then rather than go, oh, I can't take it, I'll, I'll be sick. I'll take it, I'll rinse it in my mouth and spit it out and see if it helps. It's worth a try. It is. I mean, you know, desperate times. Yeah. <laughs> try anything. Try anything. Yeah. So um, I, I guess uh, the resume of that chapter is um, eat carbs. Basically, yes. um, they, they also mention, um, I mean, the best runners in the world are the East Africans and their diets are like 76% carbs. carbs. Yeah. Uh, including like they drink a lot of uh, sugar sweetened tea, apparently. Um, mm. In addition to, you know, I mean, they eat, um, they eat like a porridge for breakfast called ugali and they, you know, that, so it's uh I think it's like a cornmeal. It's like a cornmeal um, porridge. Um, so that's full of carbs. And yeah, and they drink a lot of sweet tea, apparently, and uh, generally just have a high carbon. They're also, they're also heat adapted because they're from Africa. There's their altitude the oxygen adapted because they're on yeah. the plants there. Yeah. They're, they're, I don't know if they're smaller. Some of them, the good ones seem to be smaller. So they're, <laughs> they're smaller okay, and more well, heat we efficient. Can't have everything, but like we don't have control over all of that because you know we live where we live, but we can make sure that we're getting enough carbs to fuel our training, at least that. Sure thing. Yeah. So uh, moving on to part three, which is uh, limiters. First chapter, the three chapters there. The first chapter in part three is training the brain. So, you know, we talk about the, the body being a human machine, but also. You know, increasingly people say, well, it's what's happening in your head that counts. So how can you train what's happening in your head? We know now that uh, relative perceived effort can be critical. Um, in this chapter, one of the, the take-home messages for me is, you know, you have an expectation of what it's going to be like when you do a, uh, an endurance event. So you have an expectation and sometimes it's what happens versus your expectation. If you're expecting it to be, oh, I think it's going to be hard at, at level six and it's actually hard at level seven, your brain goes, woo, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. It's getting hard too soon. Turn down and turns down your, your energy levels and you feel fatigued. 
um, to switch to switch off your your legs before to 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 control you. So, but if you have that energy level at seven and you were expecting it to be eight, your brain actually doesn't switch off your energy levels because it it's it's easier than I thought it would be at this stage, which is yeah. kind of strange. You get a different response for the same result, um, the same situation, depending on your expectations. Which, um, good news, is something we can um, control. They talk about, um, well, in a race, uh, you shouldn't expect that it's going to be easy. What you should do is go into the race expecting that it's going to be painful at some stage. And then you won't be unpleasantly surprised. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, and and we hear we we hear uh, talk about all sorts of research with this guy Samuel Makora uh, and brain endurance training, sort of boring screen clicking exercises. Mm-hmm. Alex Hutchinson tries them. Yeah, he agrees they're boring. But the idea being, instead of going out for a run and exercising your legs, you're sitting in front of a screen and exercising your brain endurance your ability to survive this monotonous, boring task that you have to focus on all the time. And the idea being it'll make you tougher and you can focus better when you're running. And he actually says that, you know, in the absence of doing really boring, um, like brain training, uh, it's a bit the same. If you, let's say, had like a really busy day at work and, you know, like you get out of work and you know, there are just some days when like your brain feels like mush and then you have to go Mm. for your training run. And, um, if it's a workout, sometimes it feels harder than it should. So, um, that's actually kind of the equivalent. So, um, like it's good news. If, uh, you had a bad day at work and you need to go do a hard workout, then you should do it anyway, because it's a brain training. But also we talk about, um, you know, when you, when you run, when you run, run your marathon try and run with a quiet mind don't stress yourself out yeah physically it's not affecting your legs but it doesn't have to physically affect your legs to affect your legs if you know what i mean so uh, and it all makes a lot of sense Um, there's a limit to what you can do with it i think but uh, at least you don't do do things that are going to make life worse for yourself deliberately there's uh there are another couple of researchers that developed um so uh, the last names are Haas, H-A-A-S-E, and Paulus, P-A-U-L-U-S, who developed a system called, uh, it's a small M and then P-E-A-K, so like M-Peak, which is uh, supposed to be like a more uh, sports-specific type of like brain training, stands for Mindful Performance Enhancement uh, Performance and Knowledge. Yeah, apparently it's it uh, focuses on sports-specific skills like... Uh, concentrating and embracing pain rather than avoiding it. So that's a little bit um, what we talk about. And I think, you know, I think like runners, we, uh, we can, you know, put ourselves through some pain to attain our goals because like a lot of running, that's what it is. And then sometimes what it is, is like your maybe this is just my idea because they didn't really talk about it in the chapter but it kind of made me think of this I think like the quality of the pain sometimes like we can tolerate a certain type of quality but not another so for example I used to really dislike track races like because they were short but they were extremely painful stuff like the 1500 And I think like I realize now that it's because I wasn't 
prepared for that sort of uh, that sort of like lung searing, uh, intense, just like muscles feeling like they're all lactic for five minutes, which feels like 15 minutes at the time you're doing it. Um, because it's a completely different type of pain than running. Let's say even if you just compare it to like a 5k or a 10k, it's like a completely different type of pain. Um, I realized like later that, that the reason I didn't like these short races was because the type of suffering was not something that I was used to or good at. The thing is that, you know, you can become better at them because if you run more of those races, you sort of accept that that it's part of it. If you want to run a faster 1500, it means you have to suffer more basically. But the good news is that the suffering is very short-lived. That's the only good news. <laughs> it is the only good news. <laughs> I have a way of making it even more short-lived by not doing it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say that my motivation for deciding that I like the 1500 was because I really want a good excuse to train indoors in the winter and um, when you're running like 1500, it means that like going to the track once a week and doing like intervals it, is something you have to do. And bonus, it never snows inside. You can run in shorts and, um, you know, your your face is not covered with like two different ski masks trying to keep it warm so people can actually understand when you say something so you know it's it's very nice it's a nice break from the uh the everyday winter runs yeah um, i'm adopting a slightly different approach this year i'm going to go to australia for half of the winter. <laughs> <laughs> okay well to each our own <laughs> okay moving on to uh chapter 12 on zapping the brain so it says you know okay if you if you're getting a reaction from your brain can you treat your brain in some way this this chapter had a sort of a tone of almost you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest to it put the electrodes <laughs> on your brain fire yeah. a small current small not a big current but a small current through it and try to affect the signals um basically what i got out of, what i got out of this is i should ignore all of this but there's a, there's a lot of research on you know trying to adjust your brain signals but it sounded a little bit too um complicated and unproven i think for 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 my liking but basically there there is you know part of your brain which is called your insular cortex uh from from which come all the signals that ahead of complete exhaustion so those are the, the that's the area of your brain that fires the signals that says you're tired you're tired you're tired and it sends those to your motor cortex and your motor cortex in your brain sends the signals to your muscles to work or not to be able to work. So the idea of trying to somehow treat your brain is, can you take those signals of exhaustion and reduce them? Or can you take those signals of working and increase them to get your brain to fire your legs up better or get your brain to tone down your feelings of exhaustion but I think a lot of the research seems to be a bit variable and a bit sort of mixed. It's complicated because um, they apparently, if you fire the, um, the electric currents in one direction, it'll like stimulate that area of the brain. If you fire it in the other direction, it will um, like calm it down. And so what you want is you want it to calm down so that your muscles continue firing so that it doesn't send the signal to the, the, the part of your 
brain that's that's going to make your muscles um, stop firing. But so it seems like in the lab, you know, there was one um, one study that Alex talks about that says a 10 minute bout of uh, TDCS, which is like trans- transgenital cranial cranial stimulation. Yeah, basically, it just means that they put some, I guess, stickers on your scalp somewhere and that conducts the electricity uh, through your through your skull into the right center of your brain to to stimulate it. So 10 minute, a 10 minute bout of that will uh, like increased endurance by 15% uh, compared to the like, study participants that were basically a placebo group. So they set them up as if they were receiving the same the same stimulus, but they weren't. Okay. Um, so it was like placebo, like there was a placebo control, I guess. Um, but the problem is like they developed consumer products and one of them Alex actually tried and it's called the Halo. Um, it's like some kind of like a headphone that you mm-hmm. have to stick some things on your, on your, on your scalp to do the treatment the treatment but uh, like alex said that it didn't seem to work really so i mean in the lab yeah in the lab it seems like they got promising results but it's not easily implemented into like a consumer product that you can buy and he says like for uh, this particular product he said like he was um he was asked to test it but if you were to buy it i I think he said it was like seven hundred dollars or something like that which is you know i mean it's it's kind of expensive for a set of headphones yeah and um he ends the chapter basically by saying that in a race just the belief that you have like another gear left when, you know, your competitor is right beside you is uh, sort of a better, a better stimulus than, than these, um, these brain zapping kind of technologies. Yeah. I think the idea of having something to stimulate your brain, I sort of went, I don't think so. We don't see any solid proof and it sounds a bit sort of pseudoscience. Um, Mm -hmm. I was much more interested in chapter 13 on belief. Yes. Um, which is in some ways easier and harder to do, but, you know, has, has some application that you can, that you can work on yourself. Mm-hmm. It's definitely less expensive. And, and it comes me back to, it really, it brings me right back to my story at the front end, you know, about my pal Nestor. And, and he believed that he could run the three hours. You know, he genuinely thought that there was a chance that he'd be able to run that. And uh, I think that was one of the things that that got him that got him through because you know he had, he had enough belief to take it on at the start. Um, you know, I didn't have the belief that I could do it, and so I didn't set out to even try. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether I could or not, I couldn't just yeah. because I didn't start with that belief. Yeah, um, Alex talks about uh, the Kenyan running culture, uh, how it compares to like North American running culture, whereas you know. Um, mm-hmm. If you go to uh, to to train with the Kenyans, they will have a massive group of runners. Some of them elite, some of them not elite, and they will just all go out on the workout together, and they will run the pace of the leader until they can't run it anymore. And then um, and, and they and like you know then they'll sometimes end up just walking the rest that they they couldn't complete. Um, but the next day, they 
they do it again. Because for them, it's not a question of if they can be that good. It's when, when they can be that good. So they'll just keep on trying until they, until they succeed. Um, and I think we can all probably learn from that. And I know that Reed Coolsat did learn from that because he went to go run with the Kenyans prior to his 2011 Toronto marathon, um, where he wanted to break the Canadian record. I think his A goal was to break the Canadian record. His B goal was just to make the Olympic team for 2012. The night before the race, he went to his coach and he said, like, I think I can run with the top group, which was like, there were some the Kenyans. Kenyans. Yeah. Invited to the race. And his coach was like, okay, because, and prior to that, they had always been very rational about picking goals, but he was just like, okay. So, uh, so I guess for, for Reed, it was like, he believed his coach believed he could do it. And he ended up, I think he uh, placed third, but the thing is, during the race, he actually ended up dropping back and clawing his way back to the pack after 30K. So, you know, there had to be some strong belief there. And he didn't get the Canadian record, but he did make the Olympic team. And um, apparently there, there was some strong wins that day. So he had like, he didn't have easy conditions either. The book sort of closes with the, the, the bookend of the... Um... Breaking Two project with Kipchoge and the fact that Kipchoge, you know, when he, when people speak with him, he's convinced that, you know, it's only a question of when this is going to get done, this sub two hour uh, run. And that I think he says, people tell me that it's impossible, but, you know, I'm here to tell you that it's possible. And the conviction of the guy is kind of in front of something that's never been done is quite incredible and it's clearly a part of his makeup apart from being you know an extraordinary runner Mm -hmm. you can be an extraordinary runner but you have to have an extraordinary amount of belief as well and it's one thing saying well you know it's it's never been done but i believe it's it can be done but how how do you generate that belief when it's there's no evidence for it yeah i guess that's the mystery like that's where the the athletes that break records um i don't know they get it somewhere and the rest of us, we kind of wait for the proof. But I guess, you know, you, you can't always have proof as in like someone else that does it first if you want to be the first one. A nice thing about the book is there's sort of an afterword in the book. And I think it's an update in this version, this edition that we've got, which kind of updates because the original book was written around the original Breaking 2 uh, Nike uh, attempt at Monza, which which fell slightly short. I think it was 2000. Mm-hmm. 25 seconds or something it felt 25 seconds short but then mm-hmm. he uh he repeats the uh or he discusses the uh the subsequent efforts that that were made um the Ineos uh attempt and uh, sort of closes the book on that that you know it was achieved i guess summarizing all of the all of the factors in uh, the chapters of endure yeah well they did have to um they had to maximize everything and that's how we got super shoes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And I guess one day we'll see a, a real road race under two hours. I mean, it's two or ones get very, very close now. Okay. okay so what do you want to give your general thoughts on the book? So, um, so I loved uh, reading about the science of running. So, uh, yeah, th- this book, this book was great. Like I just, I, I, 
I love all the geeky sciencey stuff. So I love reading about, um, about the, about, you know, where things came from, like, and like the, uh, the low carb, high fat diet trend and, um, or at least in, in runners, because, uh, for sure, like in the general public, it exists as well. And I think for different reasons, but, um, you know, in, in runners, um, it's fun to hear about where that came from and, uh, all the, you know, all the science that has been done to figure out what endurance is and how we can get better at it. I, um, found it incredible how many scientific studies Alex referenced and, uh, that he was still able to keep a good flow in the book and keep us engaged just for your information. There's a notes section that is 26 pages along with all the details of where Alex got the info. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible. The way Alex divided the information into the 13 chapters made sense and the chapters were a good length and I didn't find any of them too long. And also the thing is he talks about certain things in more than one chapter, with, but it's because it, it's relevant to more than one chapter and it's just, um, it's nice to, you know, to hear it again. Sometimes it, there's a little bit of a different twist to it. So, so that's fun as well. Uh, I read the book twice, so I did read the original one like a few years ago when it when it first came out. And again, now for the podcast, you know, I'm sure like I could read it a third time and there would, you know, there would still be enough in there that maybe I'd forgotten from the first two reads. Like there's just so much info that uh, I'm sure like I can't remember everything. Uh, I think this book, as much as I liked it, I think uh, this book is mostly for runners that want to learn about sort of walking the edge of their athletic ability. Although beginner athletes might find it interesting, uh, it might be too much information uh, in, in in some areas. So I don't know, like if this, uh, you know, this book might not be for everyone, but I really enjoyed it. I kind of agree with almost all of that, except I didn't read it twice. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fairly dense read, so there's there's a lot of information packed into into the book, which is great. Um, it's got lots of science and history you said referenced with all the research and notes, explaining why we believe what we do today about endurance and and where a lot of the stuff comes from that you hear, kind of just running in the club. You know, mm-hmm. like shut up legs and, uh, you know, things about exhaustion and hitting the wall and uh, diets and, you know, all the science background and where it comes from. So, so that's great. It, and it's good to know that uh, rather than have, you know, hearsay. What I conclude at the end is that there's a massive mixture of physiology and psychology going on. And hence the word elastic. I think, uh, the, the title is Endure, Mind and Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And I think why it's elastic is because it's a complicated blend of physiology and psychology, as well as environmental factors on the day and all those kind of things. And it just helps you to simply conclude that that's the case. And there's a lot of things at play. And um, you could get worried about that, I think, reading this and go, oh, my God, you know, it's what a, what a conundrum. But in fact, at the end, he says, uh, Mayo Clinic physiologist Michael Joyner, the man whose 1991 journal paper foretold the two-hour marathon chase, he was the guy who said that it's physically possible to run in 157, 59 seconds or something, almost 158, yeah. 
So his advice is run a lot of miles, some faster than your race pace, rest once in a while. So he's distilled the whole of, uh, of endurance research into one simple haiku for you. So somewhere between that and the reading the whole book and trying to understand it all it lies all the answers, I think. But a great fun book, um, lots to think about and some things that you can you know, actually apply. So it's particularly in belief and, and, and those kind of those kind of aspects. I don't think I'm putting any electrodes on my scalp in the near future. Me neither. But I'm all for uh, trying to work on my own belief. Um, I think that that would be good. So another great book and uh, highly recommended um, for people who are into the detail. So thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thank you to the publisher HarperCollins for providing a review copy of the book. If you'd like to leave us feedback about how we can improve the podcast or want to suggest a book that you'd like us to review in a future episode, please leave us a comment on social media. We are Running Book Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we are Reviews underscore Running. Please also follow us on social media to find out about new episodes when they are released. Or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. If you've been listening for a while and are wondering how you can help us out, there are a few ways. If you're enjoying the podcast, spread the word. Tell your friends about it and share a link to your favorite episode with a running partner. Or leave us a review on Apple Podcast if this is how you listen to the podcast. Or you can rate us on Spotify out of five stars. Also, we're now on Buy Me A Coffee, where you can buy us a coffee. Or you can just go to our Buy Me A Coffee page. And free of charge, you can listen to some little snippets, little extras um, that we've added to our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's all from Running Book Reviews. Bye for now. Bye.